Our Old Testament lesson comes from Daniel, uh, sorry, Jeremiah chapter 34. Jeremiah chapter 34, hear now the word of our God. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army and all the kingdoms of the earth under his dominion and all the peoples were fighting against Jerusalem and all of its cities. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and say to him, thus says the Lord, behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon and he shall burn it with fire. You shall not escape from from his hand, but shall surely be captured and delivered into his hand. You shall see the king of Babylon eye to eye and speak with him face to face, and you shall go to Babylon. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord concerning you, you shall not die by the sword, you, you shall die in peace. And as spices were burned for your fathers, the former kings who were before you, so people shall burn spices for you and lament for you, saying, Alas, Lord, for I have spoken the word, declares the Lord. Then Jeremiah the prophet spoke all these words to Zedekiah, king of Judah, in Jerusalem, when the army of the king of Babylon was fighting against Jerusalem and against all the cities of Judah that were left, Lachish and Azekah, for these were the only fortified cities of Judah that remained. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to make a proclamation of liberty to them so that everyone should set free his Hebrew slaves, male and female, so that no one should enslave a Jew, his brother. And they obeyed all the officials and all the people who had entered into the covenant that everyone would set free his slave, male or female, so that they would not be enslaved again. They obeyed and set them free. But afterward, they turned around and took back the male and female slaves they had set free and brought them into subjection as slaves. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I myself made a covenant with your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, saying, at the end of seven years, each of you must set free the fellow Hebrew who has been sold to you and has served you six years. You must set him free from your service. But your fathers did not listen to me or incline their ears to me. You recently repented and did what was right in my eyes by proclaiming liberty each to his neighbor. And you made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. But then you turned around and profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female slaves, whom you had set free according to their desire, and you brought them into subjection to be your slaves. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you liberty, to the sword, to pestilence, and to famine, declares the Lord. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And all the men who have transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts, the officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. And I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials, I will give into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives, into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon, which has withdrawn from you. Behold, I will command, declares the Lord, and will bring them back to this city, and they will fight against it and take it and burn it with fire. I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. This is the word of the Lord. The law of Moses was rather clear. Israel was not to enslave their fellow Israelites. 
in certain cases, particularly for debt, an Israelite might be temporarily held as a slave, but set free in the seventh year, as Jeremiah here recounts that. Jeremiah 34 makes it clear, Israel is ignoring this requirement. Oh, yes, we made a covenant to set them free, only to enslave them again. But God says that you shall not enslave your brother. In Philemon, we're seeing how Paul makes a a big deal to Philemon about how Onesimus is your brother, and you should not be holding your brother as a slave. Many have have criticized Paul over the years for for failing to condemn the institution of slavery. Uh, They want Paul to be a, a modern abolitionist. But the reason why Paul is not a modern abolitionist is because abolition simply takes as its goal the end of slavery. Abolition has no positive goal. What are you going to replace it with? Paul, Paul's goal is not simply the abolition of slavery. Paul's goal is reconciliation between master and slave. He wants to see Philemon and Onesimus live together as brothers. You can see an illustration of the difference when you look at what happened in the 1860s. Because in the 1860s, the abolitionists won. Slavery was abolished in the United States. But then what happened? Under the Jim Crow laws, the freedmen were pretty much handed back to their former masters. And there was no reconciliation. There was no living together as brothers. And this is especially obvious when you look at what's happened to the church in the intervening 150 years. Why, why are there black denominations in America today? Well, it's largely because the white churches didn't want them to... Oh, it's okay if they come and sit in the balcony. But to have a, a black deacon, a black elder, a black pastor, that was never going to happen. To have a, a black man walk in your front door and sit down in your parlor? No. When R.J. Breckenridge was in Philadelphia for General Assembly one year, he, he paid a visit to a prominent black businessman. Uh, in, in those days, it was, it was common for social calls to be reciprocated. So if you're going to visit somebody in their home, then there's a, a, basically an implied invitation for them to come visit you at your home. Well, R.J. Breckenridge was staying with friends in Philadelphia. And those friends were horrified at the thought that this prominent black businessman might pay them a visit. Uh, think about that for a moment. I mean, if, you're, if you were that black businessman, then you'd be pleased, yes, that, that R.J. Breckenridge has come for a visit. This is, I mean, it's really helpful to have somebody as prominent as R.J. Breckenridge in your home and talking about how can we improve the conditions for, for blacks in, in Philadelphia and in, in America. But the, the rules of hospitality say that you should then pay him a visit. But the unwritten rules say that it's not worth the trouble. When R.J. leaves that evening, you know that you're not really considered equals. You can't really go to his house. Well, brothers and sisters, that's, that's not the sort of reconciliation that Paul has in mind when he talks about what's supposed to happen between Philemon and Onesimus. Paul wants R.J.'s host to see this black Christian businessman as his brother to be welcomed at the front door, not treated as a second-class citizen in the family of God. 
Emancipation without reconciliation has led to 150 years of continued estrangement. Are we brothers? If we are brothers, then we need to act as though we are part of the same family. And that's, that's, I mean, it's, it's something that, I mean, yes, I'm encouraged, but that the fact that today, I suspect all of you would welcome your black brother at the front door. And I mean, that's, that's tremendous, I mean, that's very good. So I don't want to diminish how good that is. But how often has that happened? How often, how, how well are we doing at working towards building relationships and seeking out how can we encourage this? And that's, that's something we need to keep working on. Our New Testament lesson comes from the book of Philemon. Paul's letter to Philemon. Hear now the word of the Lord. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, as both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. As we saw last week, Paul's goal in this letter is reconciliation. Uh, we often think that, oh, the goal is that Philemon would emancipate Onesimus. But the goal is not just emancipation. He's not trying to turn Christianity into a social justice movement. Rather, Paul wants something far more permanent. 
Emancipation frees slaves, but still leaves them in a socially precarious situation. Reconciliation brings about an entirely different state of affairs. And what do I mean by reconciliation? Well, it's, it's what Paul says at the very heart of his letter to Philemon, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. Reconciliation means that the walls, the barriers that were between us are, are broken down. In the case of, of racial reconciliation, it means that, that when you see a black man on the street or in a convenience store, your first thought is not fear, but love. Paul's letter to Philemon serves as a, a model of Christian compassion. One commentator has pointed out that it, it parallels Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, which embodies the gospel. The letter speaks of failure, the need for intercession, returning, forgiving, re- and restoring. And when we read it side by side with Colossians like we're doing, we learn that getting relationships straight is just as important as getting doctrine straight. If we are genuine disciples of Christ, we will relate to our fellow believers with grace, forgiveness, and encouragement. Now, I want you to, we'll start by looking at how the structure of Philemon, the letter to Philemon, helps communicate its message. And I've given you the outline in your bulletins, which shows you sort of the chiastic structure of Paul's letter. Uh, Chiasm refers to the the Greek letter chi, which looks like an X. So, uh, and it's a literary structure which is very common in the ancient world. Uh, I've never seen any ancient writer comment on the importance of chiasm. So it's, it's not clear that anybody ever talked about it. What's clear is they write like this, they perhaps even think like this, because they just, this is the way they, they write, the way they tell stories, the way they, they communicate. In, in Philemon, you can see this with the, sort of the A sections open and close with Paul's greetings. The B sections use the language of prayer in verses 4 to 6 and then verses 21 to 22. The C sections use the language of refreshing, verses 7 and verses 20, verse 20. And then the D sections speak of how Paul is related to Onesimus, verses 8 through 11, and Philemon, verses 18 and 19. The E sections speak of how Paul is sending Onesimus, verse 12, verse 12 and how Philemon should receive him, verse 17. And at the center is the heart of Paul's appeal, that Onesimus is now a beloved brother. And so when you see the way in which Paul is sort of crafting this epistle very carefully, very intentionally, it's the very heart of the epistle, the very center, is that Onesimus is now a beloved brother. We looked last time at Paul's greeting and Paul's prayer, and now we turn to how Philemon has refreshed the hearts of the saints which, if you'll notice, is paralleled in verse 20 with Paul's request that Philemon, now refresh my heart. You have refreshed the saints. Now refresh me, please. And verses 8 to 12 turn to Paul's setup for that central plea. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. Paul says, I could command you. But I appeal. What's Paul doing? Well, Paul recognizes all this could go horribly wrong. If Philemon refuses to see what the gospel requires, 
if Philemon prefers to operate by his old patterns of Greco-Roman culture rather than the new pattern of the family of Jesus, then the message of the gospel will be damaged in Colossae. So instead, he appeals to Philemon. For my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Paul uses really strong language here. I am sending you my heart. We saw in Colossians how Paul thinks of the heart as the inner man, the core of who we are in Christ. And because Onesimus and I are both in Christ, therefore when I'm sending him, I am sending my very heart someone who is connected with me to the same Lord Jesus Christ. How you treat him is how you treat me. Indeed, the parallel section in verse 17 says exactly that. In a very sort of wooden translation of verse 12, Paul says, I'm sending you my child Onesimus, whom I am sending to you, him, that is, the one who is my inner self. And that's preparing Paul. Uh, Paul's preparing Philemon for the point in verse 17. Receive him as you would receive me. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ transforms our household relationships. This old bachelor, Paul, has thousands of children. And this is when, when you think about how the gospel of Jesus transforms the household. Because we saw in Colossians, the household included, yes, husband, wife, parents, children, but also masters and servants. The, the household is a much larger group than our nuclear families. And so it's just important to recognize that, that Paul is thinking about how our, our household relations, which that means our, our economic relations, are also transformed by the gospel. And, and, and Paul says, I would, I would have been glad to keep him with me, verse 13, in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. John Chrysostom, who understood Paul's rhetorical style, says that be careful to observe how much groundwork is necessary before Paul honorably brought Onesimus before his master. Observe how wisely he has done this. See for how much he makes Philemon answerable and how much he honors Onesimus. You have found, he says, a way by which you may, through Onesimus, repay your service to me. Paul understands the reciprocity that Greco-Roman culture expected. That if it's, it's a gift exchange culture, an economy, that, that, that you do something for someone which creates an obligation on their part. I know in, in our culture, we've, we've, off, we've, we've moved to a much more purely transactional way of doing things um, because we don't like to owe anyone. And so we, yeah, there's, there's, there's benefits and costs to every way of doing it. But it's important to recognize that in the ancient world, and particularly for our purposes, in the Greco-Roman world, if somebody owes you, then, then they... They owe you, and that's and Paul is 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 working with that. He's working within it. This is the world he lives in, and he says, "This is you have found a way, which we, by how you can repay your service to me." And Paul says, "Not by compulsion, 
Paul recognizes he has no ability to force Philemon to do the right thing. You might say, well, but Paul's an apostle. He could, he could just command him and that's... But what does that really mean, Paul's an apostle? If, if Philemon refuses to emancipate Onesimus, and worse, if Philemon refuses to reconcile with Onesimus, what can Paul actually do? I mean, we think of Paul as the great apostle. But when you read the New Testament, when you read Paul's letters, read First and Second Corinthians, it's pretty clear that in his own day, Paul is very used to people ignoring his counsel. He's very used to people not doing what he says. Should they be doing what he says? Yes. Are they? Well, not so much. It's, if you think about it, the people who lived in the first century were also sinners who didn't love the Lord their God with all their heart and didn't love their neighbor as themselves and didn't do everything they were supposed to do. I mean, are we really surprised? I mean, how often do we ignore what the apostles tell us to do? Oh, right, we do that too. So, yeah, when the apostles... Paul knows. It's not enough to tell somebody what they've got to do. I mean, think, I mean how often have you been in this situation where you've, you, have, you've, you have a friend and, and your friend is, 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 is interested in hearing, you know, talking about theology perhaps or talking about ideas. And, but if all you do, if, if all they have... There's, there's all these ideas you give them how, many, how often do they just, oh yeah, I'll believe that, I'll, I'll, I'll be a Christian. It's not ideas that change hearts. <laughs> it's really only the Spirit of God that changes hearts. And that's where, when we think about the importance of persuasion in, the, in gospel communication, it's not enough to just have the ideas. You also have to understand the connection between those ideas, and the person you're talking to. It's why, it's why in, in Christianity, unlike in Islam, in Islam, God just sort of, he just sort of gave his, his word to Muhammad, boom, there you go, bah, done. In Christianity, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And even before the word became flesh, we saw this back in Jeremiah, and actually you see this all through the Old Testament, the word of the Lord came to me, says the prophets. What does it mean that the word of the Lord came to me? We often talk, have you ever thought about that? The word of the Lord, I mean, well, okay, does that mean that the prophet heard a voice speaking? Does that mean that, that the, it was a, a message in their head? Does that mean that there was a text that sort of floated down from heaven? <laughs> what, is, what does it mean? The word of the Lord, and sometimes it even says, the word of the Lord appeared. It's actually, it's entirely possible. In fact, many early Christian commentators and some wise, more recent commentators have suggested that when it says the word of the Lord appeared, or the word of the Lord came to me, it may well have been a messenger. It may have well been the second person of the Trinity who showed up. The word of the Lord showed up and said... Here's the message I have for you. There are lots of pre-incarnate theophanies of our Lord Jesus Christ throughout the Old Testament. But the point is that in, in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's not just that God speaks from on high and everything happens. It's that the word becomes flesh and dwells among us. And that's what Paul's doing here with Philemon. He recognizes 
I, I could command you. But no, I'm going to appeal to you. I want to connect, the, connect with you on a very personal basis. Paul is doing for Philemon what he hopes that Philemon will do for Onesimus. Paul is, has modeled the sort of humility and love for Philemon that he wants to see in Philemon. And in doing so, Paul fulfills the Great Commission when Jesus said, Teach them to observe all that I have commanded. Teach them, not merely by telling them, it's not just teach them all that I've commanded, but teach them to observe, which means you've got to model it for them first. If, if you've got a situation you're facing, and, and you ask for counsel, and, and somebody just sort of like, oh, just tells you what to do, without really thinking through, looking, what's the real, what's going on on the ground, that advice that's just sort of a off-the-cuff advice oftentimes isn't that helpful. But when it comes down to the rubber meets the road in all the nitty-gritty parts of life, that's, that tends to work much better. We, we need one another to advise and challenge us in our ethical decision-making. I need this. I mean, if you think about it, if we saw last time, Philemon, is, is the way he's addressed, it sounds like he is a pastor or elder in the church in Colossae. We all need wise counsel from others who are seeking first Christ's kingdom. And when we hear that counsel, we need to be slow to turn it away because others are more likely to see our blind spots than we are. And notice how Paul argues in verse 15, for perhaps this is why Onesimus was parted from you for a while. Paul does not say, this is why he ran away. Did he run away? Paul's putting it very generously, you might say. Whatever exactly happened here, in spite of and through what Onesimus did, Paul wants Philemon to see God's purpose behind Onesimus' actions. God has used this episode in their lives to transform their relationship. And Philemon needs to recognize what God is doing. God has transformed Onesimus from a slave into a beloved brother. And Paul wants to make clear that this is not just a sort of a spiritual brotherhood with no physical (laughs) implications. He says, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If he had just said, in the Lord... It might be possible to interpret him as saying, well, he can still be a slave in the flesh, but he's a brother in the Lord. But Paul sees this brotherhood as having both spiritual and temporal aspects. Our physical and social relations are transformed by the gospel. Now, Paul does not completely obliterate Roman social relations. When you hear Paul saying that Philemon should receive him back, Uh, This is still in the context of Roman patronage relationships. Philemon is a wealthy man. He's a patron with an extensive network of clients, those who look to him as their patron and benefactor. Paul wants Philemon to, to set Onesimus free, and a freed man in Roman society was was still part of the patron's network. The ex-slave would become a freedman who would owe his patron service. But, but Paul does not say simply that Philemon should welcome Onesimus as a client or a freedman. He says, as a beloved brother. 
welcome him home the way that the father welcomed the prodigal son. Or better, welcome him home the way the older brother should have received his younger brother. After all, Paul himself takes the place of the father who has welcomed the prodigal. And now he's writing to Philemon, the older brother, who isn't all that happy about how things have turned out. Urging Philemon to rejoice with me because your brother who was lost is now found. So yes, Paul is starting from the given realities of the Greco-Roman social relations. But he's transforming those relations with the message of the gospel. That the gospel changes, it's it's not just, oh, our economic and social system is perfectly good the way it is. No, it's not. There is no such thing as a perfectly good and healthy social economic relationship. Every economic and social system in human history has been marred by sin. And so therefore the gospel has to transform everything. You can't just sort of say, oh, well, this is just the way our culture does things. You know, sometimes you hear people say, oh, well, that's just, you know, that, that's just the, way we, you know, the way we do it. But what does the gospel say? What does, what does the word of God say about how we ought to relate to one another? And that's why in verse 17, Paul urges Philemon to receive Onesimus as he would receive Paul himself. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. And, and then in verse 18, he says, if, if, if he has wronged you or at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Now, this is why many think that, that Onesimus has uh, stolen something or at least that there's a significant financial debt that Onesimus owes to Philemon because Paul is saying, hey, I'm aware that there's, there's a claim here. Charge it to my account. Though it seems also clear that Paul knows Philemon will not hold him to this. Uh, you owe me even your very self. But you can see what Paul's doing as an imitation of Christ. As Jesus came as our substitute, Paul now sends Onesimus as his substitute. And as Jesus paid the price for our sin, Paul now offers to pay the price on behalf of Onesimus. Now, of course, Paul is doing this as an example to Philemon, expecting Philemon to imitate me as I imitate Christ. Indeed, in verse 21, Paul adds, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. What's the even more? Well, for one, not charging Paul for Onesimus' debt. But Paul also hints at the possibility of sending Onesimus back to help Paul. Paul had said, I, you know, I was tempted to keep him here with me, but if I did that, that would be sort of forcing you to accept what I'm saying. So I'm going to send Onesimus to you so that you can do that freely. Now please send him back. <laughs> but at the same time, Paul says, prepare a guest room for me. For I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. And notice how Paul is convinced that that Philemon's prayers will be effective. I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Prayer is effective. It's... Paul writes the Philippians something very similar when he says, "This uh, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my salvation. You know, because when you are praying, 
you are talking to the one who governs all things. If there's, if there's something in your life that you're not praying about, you're basically saying, eh, I don't need God, I can handle this myself. Which as soon as you say it that way, you're like, oh, that sounds stupid. It is stupid. But it's, it is. But when we think about who God is, we should come to him about everything. It's why, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, you know, when you're, when, when you're, when you're looking for your keys, sort of like, you're like well, yeah, I, I don't, do pray when, you're, when you've misplaced your keys. You should. Because, I mean, the same God who rules all things is the, is the one who helps us in everything. Oftentimes, oh, well, I was just, I was just forgetful. And I was, well, no. So, in all things, pray. Whether it's as small as keys or whether it's as big as sort of, where am I going in life? What am I doing? Why am I here? Everything should be brought to the Lord in prayer. And Paul is convinced that the Philemon's prayers, the Philippians' prayers, that the prayers of God's people will be effective because, because we are praying to the one who is able to do far more than we would ever ask or imagine. And Paul's closing greetings and benediction then parallel and reaffirm what he said in his opening greetings and salutation. As he, the, uh, the people that he refers to here are the same people he mentions at, at the end of the epistle to the Colossians, part of why we're convinced that, that these were both sent at the same time, because it's the same people who are around Paul and the same context. Um, so Onesimus was the bearer of both letters. But Paul's emphasis here is that is that, that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ would be with your spirit. God places his name upon his people so that the people carry his identity. Now, you might wonder, so what happened? Where's, where's Philemon 2, second Philemon? Um, sort of... In one sense, we don't know the outcome exactly, although the fact that the letter was preserved probably indicates that it was successful. I mean, after all, this is, this is one of the things that, that uh, you know, as I've said as a historian, uh, the, 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 one of my favorite lines in any letter that I've ever read is, please destroy this letter. If I read that line, it means they didn't destroy the letter. And my least favorite I'll say more about this when I come. Oh, thanks a lot. What did you really mean? But the fact that Philemon kept the letter means, and that it then got copied and spread around, that's a good sign. Also, at the beginning of the second century, uh, there's uh, Ignatius of Antioch makes reference to Bishop Onesimus of Ephesus. Well, I mean, Onesimus was, was not an uncommon name, it was, but it was also a name usually given to slaves. But the fact that there is a former slave who is now Bishop of Ephesus a few miles away would at least strongly confirm the suggestion that Philemon did in fact send Onesimus back to Paul. He completed his training for the ministry with Paul and wound up as pastor in Ephesus. Certainly, by the early second century, you find Christians often paying to manumit and release their fellow believers from slavery. But I'd like to close by reflecting on some of what Paul is doing with gospel reconciliation here in Philemon. 
Because uh, sometimes you hear people say that the way to resolve social problems is by preaching the gospel. Now, in, in one sense, that's true. But what do you mean by the gospel? This was brought home to me when we, a number of years ago, we used to host uh, the annual Rwandan memorial that they would that they would have in as they would remember the genocide and seek to uh, seek to heal from that. Uh, the that's but in the Rwandan genocide, 25 or 30 years ago, 90% of the Rwandan population were professed Christians. These were Christians killing Christians. They believed the gospel. It didn't stop them from slaughtering each other. Here's part of the problem. The missionaries had preached the gospel that focused almost entirely on being rightly related to God. And if you say that the gospel means being rightly related to God, but how you treat one another isn't all that important, Paul makes it clear that the gospel results in both a new relationship with God and a new relationship with each other. If Jesus has established a new family, and if Jesus has made you a part of this new family, then how you think about family has got to change. In our day, we are often really preoccupied with the nuclear family. We think of we think of family in terms of parents, children, and that's about it. You look at our neighborhoods and how they're designed. Sort of every nuclear family has its own space. When I was visiting Tibet with Rex, there's a very different model on the Tibetan plateau. Houses are designed to have two, three, even four distinct living spaces. Extended families can live together for generations. Each living space has a fireplace cook stove in the middle with seats around the outside of the room that double as sofas or beds. And especially in winter, everyone sleeps in those rooms because that's the only warm room in the house. Now, of course, you know, Tibetan Buddhism and, and the idolatry of the ancestors, you know, it's, it's not, there's, there's all sorts of problems there. But architecturally, it actually reminded me a lot of what I saw when I was in Eritrea, a country with very long, you know, 1,500, 2,000-year-old Christian roots. Their housing was designed for extended communities, extended families. One of, one of the young guys that I knew when I was in Eritrea uh, told me that, that he, his oldest brother, he, he didn't know that he was actually his biological brother until he was well into his teens. Because his oldest brother was more than 20 years older than him. And he had, he had always called him brother, but then again, he called all of his uncles and cousins and extended relations brother. And it was only when he was, you know, 15, 20 years old, that he found out that, oh, that guy, he's actually my brother. Huh. I mean, can you imagine not actually knowing who your biological brothers and sisters are? This reminds us that the gospel decenters every culture. I mean, Jesus urges us to reconsider the way we think about everything. Do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
the kingdom of God and his righteousness has to do with how we are related to God and how we are related to each other. As one writer puts it, the spiritual well-being of the congregation will always be demonstrated publicly by the well-being of its social relationships. Paul recognizes that what he's asking is going to challenge the core of Philemon's old world. For Philemon, the issue entails a decision between two different ways of thinking about the world. In, in Paul's mind, Philemon really has one option. But in Philemon's mind, there are two. Because prior to Onesimus running away or leaving, whatever, however that worked, Philemon lived in two worlds. Philemon could easily think in terms of, oh yes, I'm in Christ, I get this, sure Paul, I'm, I'm, yeah. But he still tends to think like a Greco-Roman patron. And he's acting like the master of a slave in the world, and then, oh, we can be brothers at church, but then master-slave during the week. Paul is challenging that assumption and suggesting that if he is to remain in the service of Christ the Lord, then he cannot be in Christ only when he is in church. And so what Paul's doing through this letter, he's actually engineering a crisis for his fellow elder in which Philemon will have to make a decision about which world he's going to live in. And the gospel will often challenge you in these ways. The gospel will come to you and say, the way that you're comfortable living isn't always the way of Christ. Sometimes the way of Christ challenges you to say, to get out of your comfort zone and to say, wait, if we are in Christ, then this is my brother, this is my sister, and we have to live as the family of Jesus, not just the way our culture says we should live. So let's ask God for help. Father, help us, because when we hear what your word says, we recognize that too often we have not loved you. And we see this because we haven't loved each other. We haven't loved one another as you have loved us. We have, we have been selfish and pursued our own kingdoms and have preferred to live the way our culture lives rather than the way of your Son, our Savior. Help us, and by your Holy Spirit, give us wisdom that we might that we might seek true gospel reconciliation with all those around us, with all those who are called by your name. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.